I'm Roy Sharples. Welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you seeking inspiration? An industry expert looking for insights or are growing your career? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to provide access to insights and content from creators worldwide with inspirational conversations and storytelling about art, architecture, design, entrepreneurship, fashion, film, music, and pop culture. A dreamer, maker, and doer, and lifelong musical journeyman, driven by an insatiable intellectual curiosity, passion, and a thirst for experiential creative pursuits, expanding into disparate topics, experimentation, tinkering, and deepening the subject matter expertise across time and space. Ian Much provides perspective on his music-making process, the Glasgow music scene, how he dreams up and expedites ideas and finds endless joy during the ups and downs of the process of creation, where he's applied various techniques inspired by Dada, William Burroughs and David Bowie, where he composes work by carving up the pages as part of his creative process, by taking a finished and fully linear text and cutting it in pieces with a few or single words on each piece, then rearranging the resulting pieces into a new text. Hello and welcome, Ian. Great. Sounds like a jet plane. It moves too fast. Is this all going to be like intellectual gymnastics where you're going to be trying to like catch me out through the whole of this One up. podcast? <laughs> One upmanship. Yeah. John Paul Sartre, what's your thoughts? The philosophy of existentialism. Existentialism, come on. <laughs> You've got all these trump cards laid out. I'm sure you have. Don't you just love them? So, so what inspired and attracted you to being a musician and producer? It was 1977. And it was just before my ninth birthday. And I was in Turriff, of all places. And I mind getting out my car, well, my dad's car. It was a, a marina. Yeah. A marina, orange. And um, for some reason, it just came in my head like, like, like an epiphany. I want an Elvis record for my ninth birthday. And this was like a week later. And then I told my mum and I subsequently got it. Why was that? Was he on the radio? Was he on the radio or the tape player? I've no idea. I've no idea. This was February, um, February '97. So, so he was actually still, still alive. Just, just, and, um, yeah. yeah, just, and it just popped in my head, and um, I got it for my ninth birthday, and it was a complete life changer. I started my own band because I was just desperate. Um, it was a band <laughs> called the Surfing Surfing Psychotics. And none of us had been on surfboards, but we just thought, you know, it would be a good gimmick, you know, to start up a sort of a psychedelic um, garage, you know, like this. Yeah, surf culture, um, the Southern California hedonistic subculture that spread around the, the planet back in the, the 60s. Dick Dale, the Beach Boys, the surfers, and they inspired dance crazes such as the Stomp, the Frog and the, the Watusi. That sort of like tiny yeah. guitars. Um, not Beach Boys, but more like sort of punky. Um, yeah. And it was quite fun, you know, having that kind of band in McDuff. And all our songs were about surfing. <laughs> <laughs> Never been near a surfboard. And um, so we all had, um, you know, it was back, you know, we were 19, so so we were young, so we had like the same clothes, you know, like um, jeans, a biker jacket, you know, like the Ramones, um, with spotty shirts, and same kind of haircut. 
Yeah. It was a long fringe and um, shaved pretty much, you know, up the sides and back. And it was absolutely f- fantastic. You know, you're just at that age where being in a, gla- a gang is, it's just a sense of belonging and it was just so much fun. Yeah. And we all got mis- mistooken for each other. You know, we all looked alike because we're the same clothes and um, it was fantastic. What does being a musician mean to you? Without it, I would be a mere husk, a shell, a spent force, an unrealised piece of flesh and bone, wandering aimlessly about this godforsaken planet in an existential quandary. What is the best thing about being a musician and producer? The ability to realise that ephemeral, magical, hard-to-get thing in your brain that you could spend a lifetime trying to describe. You could use metaphors, analogies, um, you, you could do it in Russian, French, but you can never express it better than, than through music. It's just like a, it's like a conduit to the inner part of the brain, that mystical part. It's in probably the pineal gland, because let's face it, that's where the, the mind joins the body, according to René Descartes. And I buy that. So, so I think my, my music comes from the pineal gland. And music is a way to tap into that. And then you've got to use these sort of tangible tools like microphones, um, guitars, and recording gear to, to capture it. It's like the dream catcher, if you will. And there's nothing better, nothing better than like sort of doing a song that you think's good, whether it is good, who cares? Who gives it? Who gives a jot? And again, I think that's the, that is the thing that people are so scared that, oh, is this good? Is that, who gives a damn? If you think it's good, that is really all that matters. The rest is just opinion. And opinion, of course, is notoriously fickle. The Beatles started off imitating American gospel, R&B, rockabilly and early rock and roll. Their music dealt with love songs and teen relationships up until that point. They then found their own voice and style and produced lyrics and music about everyday life and observations in their native Liverpudlian accents. They revolutionised how music was made and acted as a catalyst and soundtrack for social justice movements. In 1967, for example, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band provided one of the most powerful musical cornerstones to the now legendary Summer of Love. The Beatles continue to enjoy a canonised status, unprecedented for popular musicians even to this day. How has the Beatles influenced you? This podcast is not long enough for me to expound um, on my love. Expound? Is that the word I'm looking for? Okay, me me to talk about my, my love for the Beatles. I mean, I could wax lyrical for absolutely days, years. But it all started, I was a huge Elvis fan, as I mentioned, and I must have been about 10. It was definitely John was still alive. And um, I heard 
the song Sergeant Pepper wafting wafting mystically from my um, my brother's room so when he went out because, because I couldn't touch his, his records or else death would ensue I made a pilgrimage I'm going to use that word again through to his bedroom a, a covert pilgrimage and frantically went through his records in those old-fashioned plastic cases. I can still smell the um, plastic smell of the sleeves, you know, that plastic sort of protectors, looking through for a band called Sergeant Pepper or something like that. I maybe didn't find it, you know, in the first um, mission, but I subsequently found it, and it was the actual 1973 Blue Album. And oh my God, that literally was... It was like finding the the mystical jewels, the holy grail. I think I said that about Elvis, but this really this was the the real deal. And the cover as well with the beals, older in the front. Well, they looked ancient, you know, in the front. You know, with the long hair, peering over that um, banister in Manchester Square. And then in the back, it was the young, fresh-faced ones. And I must have spent ages when my brother was at work looking at the album cover, flipping it over, saying, all right, so this one's that one, that one's this one. Oh, that one's looks different, but that's definitely him. And that was just the um, the cover, but inside the music, <laughs> you just can't fault it. I mean, it's, it's two 12-inch pieces of vinyl with absolute majestic treasures of glory. Every song was better than the last song. How do you come up with ideas and then how do you then move those ideas into concept and actualization? Oh my God. Uh, well, I don't really. I, I just um, pick up a guitar, strum a few chords and um, stick it down or like sort of melody comes and then um, pick up a guitar and get the melody to work with chords and lyrics that's my Achilles heel because I really can't be bothered. Yeah. I am love. You know, I love Dylan and Momus and these kind of people, but I've got no time. I've just not got the patience to him write down words. So I just, um, I just kind of make up words and, um, you know, record it, you know, scat, scat sing, yeah. and then try and make some sense when I play it back and then just make up gibberish. You know, it's like very much, you know, in the sort of David Bowie, you know, like, you know, he used to do that thing, you know, he used to cut up like words, you know, yes. from paper and then throw it up and just, you know, it's like Dada. Yeah. So I'm Dada. That's right. Burroughs used a similar thing as well, where he would compose his work on a typewriter, carved up the uh, pages as part of his creative process by taking a finished or fully linear text and then cutting it into pieces. So it sounds like your process is largely sonic inspired you pick up a guitar and you'll just try and find a melody or a chord arrangement and then it, that will kind of like inspire you to craft the music and is it typically always like that or will it be a case of you could be out doing something or well then, well well i was just gonna say um, recently and um, during the last lockdown me and paul who's in scunner that's that's my present band we we formed a band called product which was an art art house um Basically, the um, manifesto yeah. was that we had to use vintage synths, vintage drum machines, and absolutely no sort of organics or instruments. 
And um, each song had to be about the lockdown experience. Oh. Um, and each song had to be a minute. Um, and it was such a such a learning sort of experience, you know, like writing a song, getting the hook in, getting the chorus in, getting the verses in, all crammed in to, to a minute. And then I must admit, you know, by the end of it, you know, I was pretty good at it. And then so was Paul. And um, yeah, we used to send each other, like Paul used to send me some like acapella stuff and I used to put synths to it and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I used to send him some stuff. So it was a great way of working. Forcing these constraints upon yourself and then working within those p- parameters. Yep. It's yep. almost like a political process, isn't it? You know, with, with, it was like being... that. I, I, it was very much like um, very organised. You know, each Monday and Wednesday, you know, I used to do two songs. So, you know, that was my obsession, you know. And I used to get up and that was a song before lunch and then a song after and videos. Yeah. Just knock up some quick vids and um, put them out that night. So, so it was quite a busy time, and, and we got seventy-eight. Wow! Yeah, but we also got like some sort of Glasgow sort of luminaries. Um, lots of people: um, Monica Queen, Johnny Smiley, Douglas. You know from from, from the BMX Bandits. Yes. Yeah. He did some, and we got Neil Williamson, who's an author, published. He did a. Um, a nice wee piece some spoken pieces by poets and it was each one sort of pertaining to their experience and, and it could be quite lateral you know it didn't have to be like this is what I did yeah. in lockdown it could be maybe the lockdown might have inspired an emotion yeah. feeling and then you could document it in a one minute segment product that's, that's interesting, right? So basically you laid down the kind of blueprint there and then you facilitated the process for other outsiders um, to kind of come in and contribute their own piece through their own unique yeah. voice style. Yeah. And I, I just love the absurd. Not not a contrived absurd. You know, there's, there's not enough absurdity in life, you know, without being contrived. Yeah. You know, I just like sort of revel in it. And the, and the lockdown was a very absurd time. So it was a very sort of fertile Period. Yeah. And it was great fun, you know. It was also, you know, it was something to do, you know. You know I used to, like, get out on my bike and, like, take my wee cameras, you know. I bought two little cameras especially for that. Not my proper cameras that I use for um, making proper vids, but just little things yeah. I could throw in my pocket. And um, just used to film things, you know, empty Glasgow streets. You know, yeah. that was quite... <laughs> Quite great, you know, and I'm sure in like 10 years' time, you know, it, it will be a document worthy of yeah. anthropological study. Yeah. And the other thing as well is, I guess, now versus how it was 20, 30 years ago, is just how accessible and easy it is to kind of make music and to oh, make film right, compared to kids, like, Yeah. Kids nowadays are so spoiled, you know. Abdi's got a mobile phone with a great yeah. camera, you know. These things, you know, Hollywood films made on um, an yeah. iPhone 5. Right. And it's absolutely crazy. And if you download Filmic Pro, you know, that's a little app. You're actually got as good as a bloody Big Red or something. It's just amazing. And um, recording, you know, iPads, you've, you've got the Garage Band. You know, I think you've got yes. Yeah. And it's such a great wee app and it's free. So the kids nowadays have got no excuse no excuse. What tools, techniques, and technologies do you use to enable your creative process? 14 guitars. I've got two ukuleles. I've got an accordion just there. I've got a couple of pianos and synths. Oh, I love synths. I've, I've grown to love synths more than them guitars. 
especially sort of vintage synths. So yeah, oh, I've got my old, my, my very first Casio. I've got one I got from a, a charity shop, which was an absolute find. I can't see it, but apparently it's quite rare and quite expensive. Yeah. So that's my instruments. Oh, I've got an auto harp as well. That's like an old fashioned thing, which is really good for doing in my soundtracks. But my gear is well. I've got an. I've got my old um, Roland workstation, which it still works. Still absolutely fantastic. I bought it for almost two grand back in like two thousand, which was an absolute fortune. You know that was back just when the sort of digital technology was you know in its nascency. So you had to spend a fortune. But now that's kind of redundant. Now. Instead of that, I use a free app that, that I got with my iPad. And I've also got it on Mac as well, my MacBook Pro. And it's GarageBand, and it comes free. And it really is the best thing since sliced bread. It is absolutely fantastic. You can get a great sound, and when you've got a MIDI interface, you can get millions of um, instruments, and you can download various apps that work in tandem you know, like I've got a Mellotron I've heard people say you know, you know, people in the know that it doesn't sound like a Mellotron but to me it sounds exactly like a Mellotron I think there's some snobbery involved there to me it just sounds like strawberry fields and that's like that was like £10 so the time is absolutely fantastic for like young people coming through and creating. It's oh, it just couldn't get better. You've literally got everything at your fingertips. Just just couldn't be better. Um, oh yeah, and I've got see a little um, Focusrite interface, which cost about hundred pounds. And so basically, for the free app and the interface now. That's all that I need. And it's in 24-bit um, digital technology, so that is like studio quality. And you just can't get better than that. No, you just can't get better than that. And, um, you know, obviously you need a microphone as well. But you can buy um, packages now for about £150. You've got a good sort of condenser mic and basically everything you need and also the beauty of GarageBand although this is not um, applicable to me because I play everything <laughs> I, am a, I am a polymath the last of the polymaths um, but you can do things like it's called um, I can't remember what it's called Smart, yeah, of course, it would be smart pianos. And basically all you need to do then is like just dial in the chords. You don't actually have to and play it. So if you can't play an instrument, you can still get your iPad, get the free app, get a little interface, a cheap mic, and you can create immediately. So you can get up in the morning with nothing and then by, by lunchtime have an album. Well, maybe tea time. 
the time has never been better for creative people. And that's the same with um, making like sort of videos and stuff. You know, you've got cheap cameras and you've got free software like iMovie, which, you know, you can make a fantastic... You could make um, the Strawberry Fields promo on iMovie. Granted, you would need an old piano, tins of paint, a bicycle and a sheepdog. What has been your production highlight to date? Everything that I've done. Really loved it. And each time you make a CD with a band or yourself, you're always like, oh my God, this is definitely, definitely the best thing. This is really going to shake up the um, world. And then time goes by and then it's time to make a new one. And then you look back retrospectively, you know, in your last one, you think, no, it's a pile of mints. No, it could have been a lot better. And then, but this time, this is definitely, this is going to be it. World domination. And and so it goes on. It's always, it's just a question of um, always trying to like get better. I think it's like, you know, it's like the carrot, you know, with donkey. I think, you know, you know, you're always trying to get, but, but you never will. But that creates the sort of motion, the sort of impetus to sort of move forward and pastime, because let's face it, you know, if you're into Camus, life's pretty pointless. It's in, it's in pretty absurd, so, so you need something to, to pass the time. Uh, yeah. So so my best creation would be... I can't really be um, objective... You know, I could only be subjective. I think it's the the last thing that I did. You know, it's it's always that last song. You know, you're always convinced. No, this is the one. And then you think, no, that's that's pretty rubbish. And so it goes on, perpetual pointlessness of creation. Or the the most important thing in the whole wide world. Let me think. Dead air time, but that's okay. I liked the the thing that I did um, during the um, last lockdown with my mate Paul 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 Ross. A big shout out there. Um, it was called Product. It was like I think I mentioned it before. Our art house thing and our collaborations with luminaries. That was great fun. Um, yeah, I think I think on balance that might be. My favourite things that I've done, but probably I think you know, you know I'll probably do something to tomorrow that I think is better. But I'm always, I'm always, you know, I've got this sort of personal mantra. I always, or this kind of like, need this sort of intrinsic thing to write a song that's oh, not in par with them strawberry fields because that would be presumptuous. But something that's oh, my personal strawberry fields, and then I think I could like lay down my fourteen guitars, my auto harps and synths, and say, "Well, that's it. I've done my bit. That's me. My resin dietra is is fulfilled." What production techniques and tools do you use? Definitely, definitely nothing fancy. I've absolutely no time for um, lush. Um, high quality productions in fact the 
absolutely do my head and you know all this sort of cacophony of noise I'm not really a big sort of Phil Spector fan N- never have been I do like um, All Things Must Pass but just that noise it actually gives me a pure headache I like things to have its place musically speaking you know I like things to be and saying that I really like um, Pet Sounds not not because it's DM received wisdom to like pet sounds, but I genuinely like it. I am liked it long before, you know, I knew it carried such kudos. I really like how Brian Wilson mixes instruments. And it, and it is it, it's kinda each instrument is kind of indecipherable. So it kinda is like a like a full spectre kinda wall of sound but I don't know it's euphonic and it's pleasing and the songs are just amazing not as good as Smiley Smile by the way that's my favourite Beach Boys album but brilliant so back to techniques I just like a nice crisp sound like help The, the, the Beatles album to me is archetype because it's the snare sound is fantastic, it's crisp, everything's clean and it's got its place. There's dud notes, a few vocal fluffs, but that's not the point. The whole point is the the overall sound. It just sounds fantastic and vibrant and it sounds real. But in saying that, I do like real. I like authentic, but I love Momus. And Momus is the pioneer of inauthenticity. He's like very postmodern, and um, he uses like bagpipes and Eastern instruments that are, you know, obviously processed. Um, lots of like woodwind, which is real. He plays flute. Um, he plays a. He plays a recorder, but he juxtaposes it with um, some some real instruments. Like his last two albums, he's been doing. Um, he's got some real accordion, but you can't really play what she openly admits. But it just works in tandem, fantastic. It really is. He's the most um, important and crucial artist, apart from Paul McCartney, of course. That's. Um, making music today it's just amazing in fact his last album was called well his second last one was called um, Accordion Spelt with a K check it out if anybody's listening to this check it out Momus Accordion it's just mind-blowingly good so yeah production wise I really admire you know the way that he sort of like jumbles up sort of um, genres, musical uh, instruments, and there's no rules. So I, I, I like all kind of production things as long as it's essentially the slave to the song. The song to me is by far the most important. Anything else is is su- superfluous. So you need a good song, and if you can just dress it up. in the best way possible but please don't put on like a million guitars a million backing vocals because it, it just to me it just drains the song it just it just weighs it down and that's my personal demit when um, making music 
who cares if it's like um, hi-fi? Hi-fi's boring. Like um, Neil Young, his um, first few albums were outstanding. The um, drum sounds and stuff, it, it just sounded so, so, so lo-fi. I know that lo-fi is now a thing, you know, it's now um, a genre in itself and it's like people actually do hi-fi, lo-fi, like, um, and I thought this was really quite stupid, <laughs> but it, it, it was a gimmick. Neil Young recorded a whole album in an old-fashioned um, booth from the 1940s, so you bought something on CD that just sounded like it came from from the 1940s, all nasally, crackly, and um, distant. I guess it was like something to write about, you know, for for the reviewers. Not a particularly great album. I think it was an album of covers and stuff. But it certainly was um, a curio. So, yeah, so a rule of thumb is the song comes first. Um, Production, bells and whistles can take a hike. Unless it's the Beatles in 1967, and I just love that. That's that's my favourite thing. Beatles 1967. And all that intricate production. Glasgow's industrial powerhouse roots have involved it into a creative and cultural centre filled with artists, designers, creators and innovators. It's the largest music economy in the UK after London and its public policies are famous for addressing both music and as an art form as well as a tool of education and social integration. How has Glasgow helped inspire you to fulfil your creative potential? Well, I came here, as I think I've mentioned before, to with the sole purpose to um, form a band in 97. Well, me and the two guys from, from the previous band came here and um, it was absolutely perfect because there's gigs on every single night. There's so many um, um, venues, so many creative people, you know, as we mentioned. Um, in fact, Alex Capranos, I think I mentioned, he used to put on a, a gig, gigs in the, which used to be the old 13th note, subsequently became Barbacus. So, so that was a hotbed of gigs. And, and not only that, um, there was lots of things like when we first came, we used to go to, it was quite a pretentious club. And it was run by um, Stephen Pastel from the, the Pastels, of course. Um, and it was called, I could never really pronounce it. It was Spanish. I never looked it up, um, the sort of meaning. It was something like Salute. And it was, um, and basically what you did, you went to the club, you could get drinks and stuff. And we all sort of gathered around, I think it was a bloody um, VCR thing. And we watched some sort of, um, art house film, some maybe some Japanese film, maybe a French film, French New Wave, and then Stephen Pastel would have um, a band playing, but it was always like a sort of um, art house type band, like he had a few Japanese bands. He'd one that I remember. <laughs> it was all in Japanese, so I've no idea what you know what um, they they were singing about, but it was girls with cardboard boxes on their heads and they'd 
on the boxes they'd drawn like pictures of like lions, tigers, and each time she said the um, creature, she flipped the box around. That was really good. That that sort of stuck with me. Oh, and then we used to discuss the actual film and um, give our thoughts on it and stuff. So I mean, that was such a. I just loved that club. It was it was just held in the again. It was held in the thirteenth note, in the basement, and you just paid your pound or um, admittance fee. It was like Mister Ben in the shop stepping through the, um, stepping into a whole new phantasmagorical world of opportunity, excitement, and um, magic, pure magic. So, what are the key skills needed to be a musician and producer? Well, the, the key skills are like something that comes comes from within. Meaning to manifest what's inside of you, whether it be an emotion, an idea, a feeling, an experience, but also to observe the everyday life, channeling and expressing that through the music that you make. Oh, yeah, that's a very fair because, you know, you know all your eyes, um, ideas are sort of synthesised through your vision and your hearing yeah. and your um, senses and then you just take it and you sort of chum it about a bit then you spout it out again and if some people enjoy it great but you know if some people are different great but it's the actual act of doing it you know just getting out there that's yeah. cathartic everybody's got the ability to sort of do it because most people can hear and see and most people can think and they can um, rationalise and so you know all that you need to do is learn like two or three chords, you know, on I, guitar. So when you put it like that, like I, I, I absolutely agree, and I do think that music is the the language of the world, right? I think it was Stevie Wonder that said that. Oh, yeah. And he's, yeah, definitely but is. It, it is right. It and transcends. It, yes, it transcends language. You know, it's just it's a spiritual thing. Yeah, and whether you're from China, Australia, Iceland, Russia, wherever. Um, it connects and it communicates in a way that makes people feel similar and, and united in a way. And then back to your point around, everybody has this ability to tap into it, but they, they don't know how. Yeah. Yeah. I actually don't think it's um, valued enough. You know, it's like, yeah. you you and probably don't know this, but in um, Britain, you know, the Tories um, are saying that the arts and stuff is like non-essential, you know, like due to this same um, lockdown and the sort of... Um, financing and giving people um, support that's viewed as not an essential thing but I think it bloody well is essential you know I think it's the most essential thing next to well you've got your sort of hierarchy you've got your food shelter yes. and the next thing is definitely art music totalitarian draconian regime where art is viewed as a luxury well run the, run the pot Picasso came out with that quote saying that you know, every every child is is, is an artist, and um, but that gets kind of knocked out with them as they kind of oh, go into school. School as well. Schooling, school, right? yeah. It's a hideous place. You know, it just knocks it knocks the sort of creativity clean out of kids. Yeah, and they're all sort of conditioned to be this capitalist machines. That's that's exactly it, and it becomes all. What is? Go for it. Sorry, please. go on. No, 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 please you go know, for it. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, instead of like sort of indulging people, you know, and their sort of more nuanced um, sort of endeavours, music, call it what you will, you've got to follow some sort of curriculum of boredom. Yes, absolutely. 
music at Banff Academy, you know, like, you know, in my day, it was a complete waste of time. You know, it was like maybe the old classical piece and and you were never engaged. It was such a shame. You know, I was desperate to sort of like be engaged through through music. But nowadays, I think things are a bit better. You know, schools have got more money. Maybe schools have got some guitars and yeah and keyboards, but it's not enough. You know, it needs to be it needs to be like not hammered home, but it needs to be like, you know, if people are showing an inkling yeah. and a sort of aptitude, they should be really encouraged, you know, at the expense of maths and yeah. Ah, oh, that boring stuff. It, it is, and I, and I do think it's creativity in terms of educational hierarchy. It should be there alongside writing, reading, and arithmetic. Oh, yeah. Or capability of, of a human being. Of course it is. And of course it is. It, it is, and, and it's like creativity is the essence of humanity, I believe, and it's not an incidental part, but it's distinctively human, and there is no attachment to fixed definitions of what any form of of life or reality making a be and I think people children should be taught in an unstructured way that kind of gives them time to be to give them space and time to be creative and absolutely self-express yeah very much so you hit the nail right in the head though as you're looking in your rear mirror Ian if you were 18 again now and you know what you do today what would you do differently if at all anything Oh, that's that's a good question. Nothing um, would probably be my knee-jerk sort of reaction because, I, you know, I've had quite a charmed life. Um, what would I do differently at 18? Well, let me see. Where was I at 18? I was a big House Martins fan, so so I would keep that. You know, I'm still a big fan of them. I was still obsessed by the Beatles. Um, I had a great home life with my parents and stuff. I moved away at 23 or something. Wouldn't change that. Moved to Aberdeen. Had a great time there. Um, then I went full-time with the band. Couldn't change that. You know, that was fantastic. You know, that's the thing life's there for. And then I came to Glasgow. Oh, my God. Such a great time here. I just knew that I wanted to create and have fun. And um, I subsequently did. And I met some great people along the way. That's great. And then um, that's that that that's really what it's about, you know. Creativity, it's about meeting people and um as well sharing our ideas and meeting like sort of kindred spirits, you know. Yeah. I also do like a sort of video thing called Walker and William, and um through that I've met some absolutely fin- fantastic people. Absolutely, you know, people that you just get on with, you know, you're just in the same page. That's great when that happens, you know. The, um, and so it's so easy to go on with like sort of creative people because you know you know it's almost like um, an unspoken thing you know you just you know, you know you can just feel it yeah there's, there's a there's a connection and energy a relationship there and Definitely. it's like you're almost and when it clicks it's like you're almost finishing one another's sentences and oh, yeah. intuitively yeah. understanding without even having to speak um yeah yeah it's like very great, much yeah. so yeah you've um, experienced that you know i mean you were saying about your um Johnny Mars thing and how the you know the you know you met lots of like great sort of inspirational people. Yeah, the Johnny Marr collaboration was was a big deal for me. It was about sustained creativity as being a true differentiator, and the people who regularly break through the status quo and embolden others to do it too become our models for true ingenuity. So it was about mentorship collaboration, continuous learning, and a grow- and having a growth mindset. But most of all, the human spirit being the engines that drive transformation in society, in business, 
in relationships and in the arts. And so this was a story about Johnny's point of view around creativity and how technology has enabled his ideas and brought his ideas to life throughout his musical journey. The Smiths were the outsider's outsider, quintessentially Northern English in their outlook and approach. And they underpinned that working class angst and imagery with the two up, two down, humdrum industry town architecture and its bitter and grim up north mentality. The Smiths uniquely saw the beauty in that ugliness and the poetry in the industrial architecture and the smoking chimneys from the red brick factories. Johnny Marr's self-styled evocative and distinctive and melodic and guitar sound were the perfect pairing for the music born from the decaying inner city. That's what his guitar sound sounded like me. It was it came from the roots of that industrial north. And his studio that we shot the movie in in South Manchester was a carbon copy of that imagery that I had. It was a converted red brick mill to collaborate with. He was just a complete joy. And you totally knew you were in the, the company of greatness, whilst at the same time, he could totally balance that off with being extremely humane and just a great guy to to collaborate and be creative with. He's a canny talent spotter, surrounds himself with top, top craftsmen um, and really, really good people. So his band, James Doviak, Ewan Grono, Jack Mitchell, and then also his art director, Matt Bancroft, Ben Thornley, and his team from Sitcom Soldiers, who we made the movie with, top drawer people. What's your vision for the future of music? Hmm. My music or music in general? Music in general. Well, I think music in general is getting a really sort of raw deal. I think that, you know, for example, Spotify and these kind of like streaming sites, you know, you've got to get about a billion plays to buy a cup of tea. Yeah. You know, I, I think we made 35p last year or something, and it's absolutely, it's an absolute scandal. It's theft. I I still totally like buy vinyl and CDs. Well, CDs, you know, I do buy vinyl, but... Um, I do prefer the the MCD. You know, I am like having a artifact. You know, a tangible thing. Um, so I do do my bit. You know, for the music. Um, I have got Spotify, but I use it purely to um, check out new stuff. And then if I like it, I'll definitely invest in it in CDs. So to answer your your question, I don't think it's looking too good. Yeah, it was David Bowie that said music itself is going to become like running water or or electricity. And his point was to take advantage of his last several years because none of it is ever going to happen again. And so you'd better be prepared for doing a lot of touring because that's really the only unique situation that's going to be left. I was just, I was, I was just thinking there, you know, it, it could be argued that the <clears throat> record companies have got their cells to blame because the CDs were just a sort of vehicle, a sort of repackage yeah. and to resell albums you know like sort of re-release so it was just a sort of vehicle to make um, more money it happened to be a good one because you know cds are great but um that actually opened um pandora's box because it made things digital and once it was digital it just could not be um contained you know and then you used to get those remember those like sites i can't remember you know on the internet you used to yeah. download stuff yeah you know back back in its nascent period and then, you know, once it's digital, you know, it's exactly the same with films. You know, you, you can type in and go into a free um, blockbuster, like, streaming yeah. site, you know, and get stuff that's in the um, cinemas. It's the 
double-edged sword. Yeah. But also, also this sort of digital and like sort of things being there, you know, to flick of a switch, you know, you go into Spotify and you can get absolutely anything you want. Well, back in my day, you know, you could tell, um, you know, it was still vinyl. And um, I do remember um, asking my my brother if he could get my the white album um, and saying, I'm not sure if you'll still get it because that was years ago. It came out in 1968, so I'm not sure. And um, you had to go to Aberdeen, you know, and a pilgrimage yeah. to sort of like look at these yeah. things that, that became like magical things, you know, once you got it in your hand, it was like, oh, my God, I've got the Holy Grail. Yeah. Now, if you just click it, it, it kind of becomes devalued. So that ties yes. in with your question in that music isn't as magical as it used to be. Yeah. that's it's losing uh, a wee bit of its mysticism. It, I totally agree. I think you're, you put that really eloquently there around the pilgrimage analogy you use. And it was like that, you know, like and when you – when you kind of got the record sleeve, it with the, the smell of fresh vinyl, the, the inlay oh, card, the details, and touching it. Was it. Like, ah, it yep. was love. It was a connection. It was love and obsession. And, you know, you'd listen to the. It was, a, it was pure obsession. Yeah. Which I'm not sure, you know, I'm not saying like kids knew, you know, you don't get kids nowadays that are obsessed, but you can't be obsessed, you know, at the same um, level because it's so easily accessible you yeah, know I, so you're satiated you're satiated immediately you know you just have a thought oh I think I'll listen to a 1920s blues thing a couple um, presses or switch and there it is that's right and it, the, it the is, point, yeah another point is the disposability as well of it all which is really oh, music is music is becoming so sort of disposable mm-hmm. you know it's yeah I don't know the good thing you know that it's so um, what's the word um utilitarian, you know, I can think of yes. a better word. But it's so um commonplace. Is it a good thing? No, I no, I think it's robbing it of a certain magicalness. Yeah. yeah. And the value bring back the magic. What what current projects are you working on at the moment then Ian? Right. Well I've got products. Well first of all, you know, I've got my own stuff, you know, the absurdist monks, but that is just um, a piece of nonsense. You know, I just like doing it. And I've got my video thing, Walker and William. Which you know, I'm doing lots of like, done lots of like sort of semi big bands. Did the BMX Bandits and and the Yearning down in London, but my main band at present is a band called Scunner. That's probably my first love, and we've been treading the boards um, since ooh, we formed in 2004. Yep, so that's quite a long time, um, and that really is you know it's exactly my type of music. You know. It, it's quite kind of theatrical at times, but it's not contrived. Yeah. It's just it's just writing good songs, you know, with like not adhering to like trends. Um I've got no interest in like trends and um I've no real interest in guitars and so we use lots of different um kind of instruments and um it's just something that I love doing and it's a bedrock, you know, of my life. Scunner. Check them out. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think? Um, like the sort of the um digital. You know. You know. You know. You've got ages like the Ice Age, the yes. Iron Age, Jurassic the Age, and yeah. I think this is definitely you know the um digital age. But I'm still in it, so it's hard to say because it's you know we've got no perspective yet. But do you think this will actually um inform evolution? You know, like yes, you know, as an effect um affecting people's brains how they de- develop. It's bound to. Well, society has become 
increasingly technologically mediated. Businesses are connecting products in the real world to experiences and virtual environments. The streets and places we pass through are becoming more and more augmented by interactive layers of digital content and information. Most of the world's music is available instantly at our fingertips. We have access to many of the the movies since the beginning of cinema, uh, playing games and watching movies online, letting people enjoy a film together and interact online despite their geographic differences. With the help of multiplayer gaming, digital media delivery services and motion controllers, it almost seems like your friends are in the, the same room with you as you play. Online photo sharing, uh, which enables people to take pictures, apply digital filters to them, share them on a variety of social networking devices. Never has it been easier to be entertained, yet we're always seeking more and more and more. And specifically to your point, Ian, around the explosive growth of social media and social networking, that has had a massive impact on how people organise themselves online. Like Facebook has become a part of our everyday life. YouTube is an endless source of entertainment and education. Uh, People want to share their stories about their real experiences and build a personal brand around their passions, their beliefs and their their daily activities and and pursuits. Um, In the 1990s, we we developed the, 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 the... we, we learned how to use, in the 1990s, we learned how to use the internet. And then since then, we've internalized the internet and made it part of our social routine. Take journalism as one example, which shows the beginning of a shift from mass media to media by the masses, in which media is being redefined as countless conversations by non-journalists, where I often have to ask myself or fall subject to read in the social reviews and commentary than the actual story itself, which begs the question of who's in control, who actually is the journalist. And ultimately, these blurring of the lines have made the lines, the boundaries so blurred that the the edges no longer are are the boundaries between virtual and physical life and how we as humans have become increasingly driven by our primal need for social recognition and celebration and sometimes instant gratification and and success. And the convergence of device functionality, so mobile access to information, our our need to be social, our curiosity for authentic content and insights, and the human need for for balance are all factors that's contributing towards the socio-political, economic, technological impacts that's redefining and evolving and bringing us to the next age, whatever that might be. Yeah, I feel the same. But but as a caveat, you know, if I'd said right, the negative thing is that I kind of miss the sort of colloquial yeah. M aspects like Macduff, for example, you know, where where I grew up, it's just the same as each town, you know, Glasgow's the same as Edinburgh, yeah. you know, you've got the same shops. Yes. You yes. kind of lose that, you know, it's it's kind of now a, a big homogenous yeah. blob whereas before each place had its own particular identity yes. accents shops bakeries butchers yeah so that's a negative side sort of nuances is getting kind of like blanded out by globalization by saturday night tv you know by x factor x yes. factor yeah. don't start exactly. me in x factor. Karaoke, total karaoke you know, culture and these kind yeah. of things 
You know, that is just like ruining things. You know, like Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, um, Iggy Pop would never, they would get booed off stage. Yeah, exactly. If they sort of applied for X Factor. And so a lot of artists are like getting looked over because it's, you know, you've got to sound like Mara Carey and these kind of people and that verbal sort of, oh, that verbal gym, gymnastic things is, oh, that fake emotion, that, you know, emotion once removed. Somebody doing a facsimile of something that might have been the motion years ago. To your point, they don't do it on X Factor or America's Got Talent. Um, they do it by, you know, driving up and down in the the, the M1 like you guys were doing in your camper van, um, hustling oh. and kind of gunslinging across local venues, local colleges. And it's sad, you know, because that's got nothing to do with creativity. How soon is the future? One thing for sure is the future is unwritten and everything is possible. Do you want to learn more about how to create without frontiers by unleashing your creative power? Then consider getting Creativity Without Frontiers. How to make the invisible visible by lighting the way into the future. It's available in print, digital and audio on all relevant book platforms. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.